Our reading is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. I wonder what tempts you. If I go into a coffee shop, I might like iced cakes. And as soon as I see a cake like that, I'm very much tempted by it. Or if somebody gives us a box of chocolates, I'm not just uh, grateful for the first taste, but uh, I could quite easily work my way through a box of chocolates because I'm always tempted by them. Or maybe you're tempted by things you can't have. Or maybe when someone is uh, unkind to you when you're driving along and overtakes you and then cuts you up. Um, Maybe it's getting back at somebody. Mostly, I think, our temptations revolve around greed. But Jesus' temptations were all about his mission, the reason that he came. And the temptations that he had in the wilderness were designed to shift him of that course that God had planned for him. Immediately before the passage that was just read to us, Luke um, includes Jesus' genealogy. Uh, You can read about that in chapter 3, verse 23 to 38. And he traces that genealogy all the way back to Adam. Why does he do that? Well, Adam was the first human being. And when he was tempted, he failed, which had dire consequences for all his descendants, including us. And so when we read the account of Jesus' temptation, we must realize how much is at stake here. If Jesus fails, he's no different from Adam. 
So, let's watch Jesus in action. He's 30 years old, he's just been baptised, and as he walks through the Jordan River to be baptised, the voice from heaven shouts, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And stretching out before him are three years of mounting conflict, which he knows will end in his death to pay the price for your sin and for my sin. To make it possible for us to have a relationship with our Creator and our Father God. So, of course, Satan is absolutely determined to try and stop that divine plan. And so, in the desert, Satan asks Jesus to turn stones into bread. We're not exactly sure where the Mount of Temptation was, but it was uh, somewhere just outside Jericho. And there is a hill there which has these stones which rather look like bread. And so often people say, uh, this must be the Mount of Temptation. Maybe, maybe not. And so the temptation is to turn stones into bread to offer all the kingdoms of the world, to urge him to jump from the highest point to see whether God would uh, save him. But where, you may ask, is the evil in these temptations? They are not evil in themselves, but they're clearly pivotal, otherwise they wouldn't be a temptation. So Satan is saying to Jesus, if you are God, then dazzle me. Act like God would. Turn these stones into bread. And there is a sense of the devil mocking Jesus here. Maybe he's thinking, how pathetic. The Son of God is struggling with hunger. That's so human. Come on, you're better than this. You deserve more. Go ahead. Take some bread for yourself. You know that you want it. This is bread from heaven that Satan tempts Jesus with. And remember how the Israelites ate bread when they were hungry in the wilderness. It came down from heaven and it was called manna, which in Hebrew means, what is it? And Satan is saying, look Jesus, you are hungry like your ancestors were. You are in the wilderness now just as they were. You can use your power to make bread for yourself. Go on, it's okay. But the Israelites in the wilderness relied on God for that provision. They believed that God would provide for them daily. Do you remember? That's what he promised them. But also you might remember that some of them tried to do things their own way and gather more than enough for the following day. It was panic buying in another another way. And the extra they collected went bad. It became full of maggots. If they wanted daily sustenance, they had to trust God to give them each day their daily bread. And not to attempt to provide for themselves. And this is the same temptation that Jesus is facing here. If he made bread for himself, he would be relying on himself rather than on God. Of course he had the ability 
to make bread from stones. But that would not have been a proper use of his power. He came to serve others, not to serve himself. So this is the important question and the question everybody needs answering. What should the Messiah look like? Some popular miracle worker who has the ability at the flick of a finger to turn stones into bread? Jesus' answer is that the spiritual is more important than the physical. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, where Moses reminds the Israelites that manna wasn't enough for living. Mankind doesn't live by bread alone, he says, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They must rely solely and completely on the word of God. And Jesus knew that God wouldn't send him to earth to protect him from Herod's sword when he was a toddler and then allow him to starve in the wilderness. So what kind of Messiah is he? Perhaps some super transcendent priest demonstrating superiority by standing on the pinnacle at the temple. So Satan takes him to the temple and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will give his angels charge over you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan was urging Jesus to presume on God's gracious protection, to willingly endanger himself. So if you want to solely and completely rely on God's word, you can trust the angels to save you, can't you? And Jesus answers directly, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. In all of this, Satan had one aim, to do whatever he could to prevent Jesus from suffering. He was willing to let Jesus have all the glory and all the authority of a world ruler, so long as it didn't involve suffering. He was eager to let Jesus use divine power. If only he would just use it to relieve his own suffering. He was willing to let all the followers acknowledge his divine sonship as long as the angels could protect him and keep him from suffering. What kind of Messiah is he? Perhaps he's a kingly Messiah who had conquered Israel's enemies and was ruling over not just Israel, but all the kingdoms of the earth. So Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and says, all these I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. It's laughable, isn't it, that Jesus suggests that he is worthy to be worshipped by Jesus and that he could give the whole world which was created by Jesus and belong to him, to him, to his rightful owner. You see, in essence, this temptation is designed to be a shortcut. Instead of persisting on this course that would ultimately cost him his life, Jesus was being tempted to accomplish that same object objective by, by being king of the world, but in another way, without suffering. All these temptations fit the prophecies about the Messiah in some way. Except the most important of all prophecies 
the prophecy that when the Messiah came, he would suffer. A few years ago now, I was invited by the Bishop of Horsham to go with him and a few others to the synagogue in Brighton, which I was keen to do. It's an interest of mine, and uh, Mark Sarabi knew that that was an interest in mine. And there we were, we went to the uh, uh, synagogue, uh, a lady rabbi, liberal rabbi, and uh, as part of her tour, she got out the scroll from the ark, which stands at the back of the synagogue. And she pulls out the scroll and she says, here it is, what would you like me to read? And before anybody else could say anything, I said, Isaiah 53. And she said, we don't read Isaiah 53 in the synagogue. Do you know that Jews very rarely have read Isaiah 53? Talk to a Jew about Isaiah 53 and it opens up a whole new uh, vista for them. You know what it says? He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Surely he took our pain, he bore our suffering, he was pierced for our sins, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And when you read that to Jewish people, it's still a light bulb moment for them to understand that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah. Here is the prophecy that he was to die a cruel death. And that temptation to try and find another way to accomplish God's plans without suffering reared its ugly head again and again through Jesus' ministry. You remember he had to give Peter a strong word. He actually talked to Satan in the presence of Peter saying, out of my sight, Satan, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And you remember Peter didn't like the idea of, uh, of a Jesus that would suffer for us. He said, never, Lord, this cannot happen to you. And on the cross, Jesus will hear that same temptation again. Aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself then. Let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe. Let God rescue him now, if he wants to. But there was no rescue. There was no easy, painless death. He was dying for the sins of the whole world. And he died at three o'clock in the afternoon. The hour when Jews all around Jerusalem were sacrificing baby lambs and at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus chose that time to give up his spirit. The Lamb of God was taking away the sins of the world at that moment. So what we see in these temptations is a Messiah who was to suffer and wasn't going to find a shortcut all the way through it. And so he's exercising restraint. And the restraint that he shows there, you see throughout his ministry. You never find him twisting a person's arm. Rather, he would state the consequences of an action and then throw it back 
for that person to make the decision himself. He answers the rich young ruler's question without compromising words. If you want to follow God, if you, who own a lot of, of, of dough, uh, if you want to follow God, then go and sell all that you have. And then Jesus lets him walk away. He doesn't run after him. He doesn't say, let's come to an agreement. He doesn't try and persuade him. Jesus shows incredible respect for human freedom. And when Satan asks to test Peter and sift him like wheat, he simply says to Peter, look, Satan is wanting to sift you like wheat, but I'm going to pray for you so that your faith will not fail. And when the crowds turned away from him, and many of the disciples left him, he asked the twelve, are you going to leave me too? He doesn't try and stop Judas from doing what he needs to do. So here's Jesus, clear about who he is, clear about why he came, resisting temptations that try to throw him off course, but equally respectful of our free will. And who will stand with us as we stand against the enemy? He will give us the courage to stand against the devil with a promise that if we do, the devil will flee from us. But Jesus will not force us in any way. He just encourages us to deny ourselves and pick up our cross daily and follow him.